pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for time to gather together and sing praises to your name. Pray that now, even now, as we open up your word to see what it has to say to us, that we would be cut to the heart with what we must do. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand your word and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Be seated. Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 to 34. Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 to 34. And if there are children in the congregation that want to go to Children's Church, you can be dismissed out the back door. Uh, Tom will be out there in the foyer to greet you there. Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 to 34. We're all familiar with that that, uh, Western movies. We've all seen them from time to time. We all know that standard story that sort of has a tendency to repeat itself in most Western movies. First you have the traditional bad guy. The bad guy comes along and he starts wreaking havoc on the town. Everybody knows this bad guy. Everybody avoids this bad guy and all of his henchmen. And we all recognize him. And then all of a sudden, what happens? The good guy comes to town. He comes to town and he, he comes to the, the bad guy and he confronts the bad guy. And typically, at the very end of the Western movie, I have in my mind the good, the bad, and the ugly, where Clint Eastwood is standing there at the very end and he's got the, the guys on either side and he's, everybody's got their hand uh, getting close to their gun. Which one's going to draw first? The, not the good guy, though. The good guy's like making a sandwich. He doesn't care. Because it takes the bad guy three years to draw his gun. The good guy, it takes him half a second. And he lays waste to all the bad guys that are there without ever getting shot, right? We have in our minds these Western movies with that scene at the end where the, the, the hero comes to town and saves the town. And usually at the end, there's the, either the riding off in the sunset and the, the people of the town are praising his name or they, they, they come together and rejoice over their salvation. Well, this morning in our text, we have what amounts to a good old-fashioned Western showdown, all right, between Jesus and the demonic powers. Between the power that we've seen demonstrated by Christ up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew versus a demonic power that we haven't seen really up to now. So with that in mind, let's look at our text this morning, Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 and following. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned into the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. We're now in the second of three consecutive miracles 
that we're going to see in this particular section of Matthew. In the first, we, we're, we see a very familiar story where Jesus is on a boat and he tells a sea to calm down, to quit, and the winds and the seas obey him. And it's at that point that the disciples begin to question who is this that they have in the boat with them. You remember this chapter begins, though, with also three consecutive miracles. So we're in the second of three consecutive miracles, but the chapter opened with three consecutive miracles. And all of those miracles were concerned with Jesus healing the sick. We saw him heal a leper. We saw him heal a centurion servant. We saw him heal Peter's mother-in-law. And we saw him heal people in the entire town of Capernaum. Now, in our text this morning, Jesus and the disciples have left the city of Capernaum, and they're in the region of the Gerasenes. Some will have Gerasenes in their text, which is the province that they were in, and some will have Gadarenes, which is the city that they're getting close to or that they're going to. Now, we're not told really what the purpose of Jesus' mission is here in this town. Either he is headed there to do ministry amongst the Gentiles and proclaim the kingdom of God amongst the Gentiles, or he's really just getting away from the crowd that was gathering around him in Capernaum, in the land of the Jews, knowing that when they get to the area of the Gentiles, no Jew is really going to follow them there. Either way, they've made it to the town of the Gerasenes, or the region of the Gerasenes. And so this passage in particular, I think is best understood if we look at it from different perspectives. Look at what it says. It shows the many different angles of Jesus. We're going to look at Jesus sort of like a diamond in this passage. We're going to see the same verses, but we're going to see how they reflect different aspects of Jesus' character. Now you remember this whole section, chapter 8 and 9, are concerned with who Jesus is. And so as we look at these three different angles, we're going to see, I think, three things about Jesus in this passage. And I want us to consider in these verses. First, his power. Second, his authority. And third, his mercy. So first, let's consider Jesus' power that's on display here. Now you'll recall last week, we saw Jesus in the boat with his disciples. He's, he's in the boat. The storm hits the Sea of Galilee to the point where the disciples are fearing that they're going to die. The disciples get up and they rush Jesus in a panic who is asleep on the boat. And they wake him up and they say, Lord, you've got to get to your feet. You have to hurry. We're, we're going to perish. And Jesus seems in no particular hurry to even put on his shoes. He gets up, well, before he even stands up, He rebukes the disciples for their lack of faith. Then he stands up and he stills the storm. And the parallel that we see in that text last week that's evident is the greatness of the storm that's called out at the beginning of the passage. And then at the very end, the greatness of the calm that results from Jesus' miracle there on the sea. The point being made there that the power of Jesus overcomes the powers of the forces of nature. Here we are this week, and Jesus and his disciples, they get off the boat, and they're immediately confronted by two men who have been demon-possessed. There are a couple of things Matthew notes here for us. First, you'll see in the text, is that the men were living in the tombs. And the second is that they were effectively what amounts to gatekeepers for the the road that passes by the tombs. 
And it, he even says that they were so fierce that they didn't let anybody pass by. So basically, as gatekeepers, they ensured that no one could use the route going by the cemetery or these tombs out in the middle of the region. So these men, we're told in the other Gospels, they meet Jesus' disciples, Jesus and his disciples, as soon as they step off the boat. Now, it's here where we have a little bit of an issue. Because here Matthew points out in verse 28 that two demon-possessed men come up to Jesus and they met him on the road. However, in both the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke, it says that a demon-possessed man met Jesus as soon as he stepped out of the boat and onto dry land. So here in Matthew, we've got two demon-possessed men, while in Mark and Luke, they only mention one demon-possessed man who is possessed by a legion of demons. But all three Gospels seem to be talking about the same account. How do we know that? Well, because in all three accounts, this happens right after Jesus calms the storm. All three of the Gospels show this right after Jesus calms the storm. And in all three accounts, we have the same telling of the herd of pigs that the demons go into and run off the cliff into the water and drown them there. And then in all three Gospel accounts, we also have the account of the townspeople that come to see Jesus and they, well, they effectively uh, run him off, run him out of town. So by all accounts, these are the same stories, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that these gospel writers are telling. But why the disparity between the accounts? Now, there are some people that will scoff at the gospel narratives and will say, see, there's contradiction in the text, it's here, and they'll point to texts like these, and they'll say, here is the apparent contradiction in the text. But of course, that would break the boundaries of the definition of a contradiction. See, neither Luke nor Mark claimed that it was only one demon-possessed man that came to Jesus at the time. They claimed that a demon-possessed man came to him, which is absolutely true. A demon-possessed man did come to him. Mark and Luke don't exclude the possibility that there was another person present who also had demons, but they only focus on the one man. Why? Most likely because he does most of the talking, and he's the one that's the center of the concern. Now think about this for a minute. We do this from time to time in our regular life. You might go to the grocery store or something like that. You see a couple that you knew and you come back home and you tell your wife or your husband, hey, I saw Jane at the store today. Now, I know I typically do this. We were having a conversation about somebody and then I went to the grocery store and I saw, hey, oddly enough, I saw Jane today at the grocery store. And I don't mention the fact that she was with her husband, Jim, at the time, but I just say, I saw Jane. Or we do this when we see Jane, but we don't mention the teenager that she had with her at the time. We just say, I saw one of them at the store. I saw Jane there at the store. So I gather that by all accounts that the demons, uh, that the, the demons are only talking through one man. That, that one man is really the center of the concern. Now in both Mark and Luke, there seems to be more of an emphasis on the people that are following after Jesus. 
There seems to be a real concern about discipleship in both of those Gospels. Who cares to follow Jesus? And in both Mark and Luke, we have this little uh, addition at the end of this story where one man comes up to Jesus, who, has been, who was demon-possessed, who Jesus healed. He comes up to Jesus, and he tells Jesus that he wants to follow Jesus, making no mention of a second man. So it seems like Mark and Luke are both trying to communicate, this is the man that wanted to follow Jesus because, he's, uh, because they seem more concerned with discipleship in their Gospels. But Matthew here is not really concerned about who is following Jesus, but he's more concerned with Jesus' power and authority that he has to exercise demons, which is the center of the scene. It also explains why Matthew's telling of this account is so short compared to the other two Gospels. Well, what do we see Matthew emphasize here in this story? Well, right away in verse 28, the men were coming out of the tombs. They were so fierce that no one could pass that way. Now, the word fierce here is often used for wild animals that you wouldn't want to go near. The kind of rabid animals that are going to attack you if you get near them. So no one in the town could pass that way for fear that they were going to be attacked by these crazy men. Presumably, this had happened before, I'm, I'm assuming. But then what happens as soon as they meet Jesus? They cry out. What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Well, they don't seem to be so fierce at this moment. You see the disparity between the two? They, they, they were so fierce that the townspeople wouldn't come by. They, Jesus steps onto the shore, and all of a sudden, they don't seem so fierce anymore. I'm reminded of that movie, The Sandlot. Remember the movie? The, the dog on the other side of the fence is a terror to the kids. He swallows their balls every time they hit him over the fence. No one will dare go back. They try a couple of times and they get scared out of their minds until, of course, they meet the owner. And then that big, fierce dog turns into a, just a little puppy dog. This is exactly what is in here in this scene. The demons have met their owner, effectively. The parallel passages of Mark and Luke, we see that this is not just one demon who has possessed this man or these men, but he has a legion of demons in him. So many that they can't call out all their names. They'd say their name is Legion, for we are many. So it's right and accurate to call these possessed men fierce because of the spiritual power that they possess, or rather, I should say, that has possessed them. But once they encounter the true power of Jesus, the legion of lions becomes a box of kittens. Look at their question to Jesus in verse 29. What have you to do with us? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Not only are they terribly afraid of the power of Jesus as he steps off the boat and into their area, but they're concerned that he's come to torment them. Now this is particularly ironic because they, these are the very same ones who have been tormenting the people of the town as they've tried to walk down that road. They've been tormenting the people of the village to some capacity. 
but one sight of Jesus, and they become the ones that are concerned with being tormented. More than even a concern for being tormented, these demon-possessed men are now in a place where they're begging Jesus. They're actually begging Jesus. They're asking him, if he decides to cast him out, if you decide to cast us out, then please send us away into the herd of pigs. So this, this fierce legion of demons has been crippled before Jesus to the point that they're begging him for mercy. This is the power of Jesus. As soon as he steps off the boat. But now, the second thing I want you to consider for a moment what these verses say about Jesus' authority. Let's consider Jesus' authority here. We can't forget about the passages that come before this one and the passage that passages that come after this one either. Up until this point, Matthew has been concerned with Jesus' authority. He's been telling us about Jesus' authority over and over and over again. Jesus' authority as the head of God's kingdom. The one who has the privilege of bringing God's kingdom into the world. It shows up most clearly in the miracle with the centurion. Does it not? The centurion comes up to him and recognizes that Jesus has the authority of God himself. And that from a distance, you can even call out and heal my servant who's back at my house. Because I know, because I am a man under the authority, that you too have the authority of God himself. So just say the word and you'll be healed. And Matthew tells us he is healed. It leads Jesus to say, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith And miracle after miracle is about Jesus' authority over this kingdom. But then the next miracle, the one we'll look at uh, next time, the next miracle will also demonstrate Jesus' authority. In fact, it's specifically stated in that passage in the, in, at the beginning of chapter 9. The people are, are, are there and, and Jesus is, is going to forgive this man's sins. He's going to heal this paralytic. And once he does, they, the people praise God for the authority that he has given to Jesus. So that tells us something about what Matthew is trying to help us understand and see about Jesus himself, that he has the authority of the kingdom. And this is of central concern. We need to understand that. But, but look at how the characters in the story are responding to Jesus. And remember I said last week that the characters in the story are in the process of understanding who Jesus is. There's that dramatic irony where we're told up front, this is who Jesus is. And then Matthew's trying to prove it to us over the course of the book where the people in the story don't know who Jesus is up front and they're learning it over the course of the book. They're finding it out along the way. Well, in the passage that we read last week, the disciples are left asking the question at the very end, who is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? So it's clear that Jesus has demonstrated his authority even over the wind and the seas, but it it puzzles the disciples who are there in his boat. Uh, Who who is this guy? As it turns out, when you see a man stand up in a boat and talk to a storm and it obeys him, it sort of breaks your categories for what you think is possible in this world. As it turns out. I think even if you did think, yes, this is the Messiah, which clearly they had some indication of that, or they wouldn't be following him. Once he stands up and starts talking to the wind, all bets are off, okay, at that point. 
But what the disciples are left asking at the end of verse 27, the demons answer in verse 29. You see that? In 27, they're left asking a question, who is this? The demons just come right out with it in verse 29. What sort of man is this? Well, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Demons know. See, what the disciples are left wondering, the demons have no problem fully disclosing. Now, the first two times this title, Son of God, is used in this gospel, you know who it's said by? It's said by Satan himself. If you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, the next time it's going to be stated, it's going to be by the disciples who witnessed Jesus walking on water. Truly, you are the Son of God. The phrase essentially equates to king. You're the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who has the authority over, over all things, the one who comes in the name of the Father to do the Father's business, to command his estate, so to speak. Now the reason that Jesus takes the title Son is specifically for this reason, why, the reason why it's applied so often to the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. It's not because uh, God bore Him like we would say we have sons. No, it, that, that's not what He means. He's not created. He's an eternal being. He is God in the flesh. But the reason that He takes on the title Son is because He's sent to do the Father's business. He's sent. He's all, he is and always has been the Father's representatives as, as sons have been throughout history and in virtually all cultures. And the demons confess this right up front. What have you to do with this, O Son of God? And the demons recognize that Jesus has the authority to send them away. Doesn't he? Don't they? They recognize that Jesus has the authority to send them away. They beg him to send them away into the pigs in verse uh, 31. In other words, they recognize that at that moment in time, Jesus has the authority to do with them whatever he wants. And whatever he says, they have to obey. Not only do they recognize his power, but the demons recognize that he has unique authority as the Son of God. And then he gives them one simple command in verse 32. He says, what does he say? He says, go. That's it. He just says, go. Look at the lack of red letters in this paragraph. It's just one command. Go. That's it. Go. There's the authority right there. So these fierce demons... So fierce that no one could pass their way. Had terrified people of the village. Receive one command from Jesus. And they scatter into some pigs. One of my favorite hymns of all time is A Mighty Fortress is Our God by Martin Luther. The third verse says this. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. We shall not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. 
Brothers and sisters, I think it's worth looking at this passage this way, if for no other reason than to remind us of the power and authority of Jesus Christ. How often we live our lives in fear. We have fears of our future. What happens tomorrow? We have fears of where our country is heading. We have fears of our government. Speaking broadly across the entire body of Christ globally, fears of governments are ever-present. We have fears of oppressors. We have fears of impending persecution. What will life be like for our kids and for our grandkids or perhaps even for us? We have fears of social pressure, whether people will like us or not. We have fears of provision, whether we'll have enough or not. We have circumstantial fears, whether all the situations and troubles that are surrounding ourselves, us right now will, will be resolved. Circumstantial fears. We have health fears, whether this will be the end or not. It bears mentioning that if you are a child of God, you serve the maker of the universe. Who with one simple sentence created light from nothing. Who walks onto a shore and these fierce demonic powers run and hide. Or better yet, come out of hiding. This same creator is also our sustainer. He calls us child. For what possible reason do we fear? He has called us children, and he's reiterated over and over again in the scriptures through the mouths of the prophets Fear not, for I am with you. It's a promise. Fear not, for I am with you. Now, I would submit to your, for your consideration the simple fact that your situation has not escaped his notice. No matter what that situation is. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then the very same spirit that makes the demons tremble is alive in you. Therefore, you have nothing to fear. This is the importance of seeing the power and authority of Jesus in these miracles and in these stories. It's still Jesus that the enemy fears. It's not you or anything that you possess in your flesh. It's still Jesus that the enemy fears. But you are his body. And he is a ruthless defender of his body. Ask the Apostle Paul. So not only do we have nothing to fear, but we also don't have to fret about the fight. There are plenty of people that want to squabble. There are plenty of people that want to fight. But listen, if I'm obedient to Christ... If I'm obedient to Christ, then it's Jesus they're fighting. They can take it up with Him. 
I don't have anything to fight with you about. So the importance for us is to ensure that we're blameless in the scene. And if there is any sin, we can freely confess it. We can own it. Because this same Christ who fights for us also died for us. I have nothing to fear. Not even my own sin. I know I'm a sinner. He already called me a sinner on the cross. I can own it. Yes, I am. I can confess it. I can repent of it. I can live my life in repentance and obedience to Him. And if I'm, if I'm maintaining that position, if I'm in that place, then I should be anxious in nothing. Because look at the power and the authority of Christ. But last, consider Jesus' mercy. This might be a little bit different, but consider Jesus' mercy here. Look at verse 33. The herdsmen fled... And going into the city, they told everything, especially what happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Notice that the people behave very similarly to the demon-possessed men. What do they do that's the same? Both of them are in a place of begging Jesus. Both of them, the text says, begged Jesus. Jesus. Both of them are in that same place. But we're faced with this question. It should be nagging us. Why do the people ask Jesus, or really beg Jesus, to leave their region? This is a surprising twist from the Western that we've all seen, where at least the people are grateful for the person coming in and ridding themselves of the darkness, right? Sometimes they praise him, sometimes they give him a bunch of stuff, whatever. Sometimes he rides off into the sunset, but they're all happy that he's done his work. But this is a twist on our Western. This is different. This story, ever since I was a little kid, always bothered me. Because I always thought, why on earth do the townspeople beg Jesus to leave their region? And the interpretation never set well with me. The interpretation I always heard growing up, and I guarantee you, if you grew up in church, you heard this interpretation before as well, that Jesus had destroyed these pigs. And the townspeople were pretty mad at the fact that he had destroyed the pigs, and they were frustrated, and so he destroyed their source of income. And so they came out, and they, they told him, hey, look, we're going to need you to leave, all right, because you, you're one big pig killer. That's all you are, all right? I guarantee you, if you've grown up in church, that's probably the interpretation that you've heard. Yes? Amen? All right. You've heard this before. Okay. I don't see any evidence for that in this passage at all. I don't see any evidence for that in the other two passages at all either. It seems like all three gospel writers are actually going a different direction. See, here's the point that I think is being made and by the townspeople as they come to drive him away. The townspeople are more afraid of Jesus than they were of the two demon-possessed men. This is a testimony to his power and his authority. They're more afraid of Jesus than they were of the two demon-possessed men. Imagine that you lived in a little town in Mexico. All right? And this little town is ruled by drug cartels. Now, you know that there are certain places that you don't go at night. There are certain times of the day that you don't leave your house. There are even certain people that as you come across them, you don't make eye contact with them. Now, imagine you're in this town and one day 
this, and you're ruled by these dr- these, this drug cartel. And one day, this foreigner shows up. And as soon as he set foot inside the city limits of your town, the drug cartels run and hide. Now, you might be thinking, our hero has come. Or you might be thinking, I was afraid of the kittens. <laughs> now what? What happens now? There are occasions where the enemy of your enemy is your friend. But if you add to that this spiritual element that's at work here in this scene, where a legion of demons start talking out of this man, and where Jesus then says, go, and these, probably I'm assuming a shriek from these men, they know that they they were out, and then all of a sudden your pigs start going crazy, and they run off a cliff, and they drown in some water. Put all those things together, the people are terrified of what just happened. Notice the herdsmen. Do they flee and tell everything to the townspeople, especially what happened to their pigs? No, they don't. They run and tell everything, especially what happened to the demon-possessed men. Remember, these, these two men had terrorized their town to the point that they avoided the road that they were going on. They would take a different direction, a roundabout direction around where the men were. But Jesus shows up and these terrorists in the cemetery are begging for mercy. The parallel passages in the other Gospels just flat out say the reason that the people asked Jesus to go. Luke says this, They came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. They're not mad about the pigs. In fact, the pigs are the least of the concern. Now, on the surface, it might not seem like such a big deal about the interpretation. Why do do we really care about which way we interpret this? Except that thinking that they ran Jesus off because they were concerned for the pigs distracts from the actual point of the passage. See, they didn't run Jesus off. They begged him to go. And it underscores the point of the whole story. The people see the magnitude of Jesus' power and authority, and they're seized with fear, and they beg him to go for fear that he might use that power and authority against them the way the demons did, except this time it would be much worse because this guy seems to have no borders, whereas those demon-possessed men, at least they stuck to the cemetery. This guy seems to go wherever he pleases. But do you notice something peculiar? Jesus grants their request. He grants their request. Jesus extends to them a different kind of mercy. He relieves them of the suffering of their town, even if he doesn't yet give them the hope of a better kingdom. It's as if Jesus is laying the groundwork for the disciples who will later come to the Gentiles proclaiming the message of the kingdom. See, when the demons have power, how do they wield it? When the demons have power, how do they wield it? Well, they're so fierce that no one could cross their way. 
But when Jesus has power, how does he wield it? He's merciful. In fact, the other Gospels, Mark and Luke, both include this little fact at the very end that this man who had had the demons exercised from him told Jesus that he wanted to come with him and follow after him. Let, let me come with you. I want, I want to follow after you. But Jesus wouldn't let him. Instead, he tells him this in, in the Gospel of Mark. He says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. He leaves a witness. This is incredible mercy from Jesus. See, Matthew leaves his mercy on the townspeople really implicit in the story. You, you sense it. You, you feel it. And that he relieves them of their fear. He binds Satan's influence in their town. But the other two Gospels just spell it out. That though Jesus is, is infinitely more powerful than the forces of darkness, he is also infinitely more merciful. For that matter, if you back up to his interaction with the, de with the demons, he even extends mercy to the demons. See that in this path. He even extends mercy to the demons. The demons recognize that he has the power and that he has authority to utterly destroy them right then and there. He can do whatever he wants with them. He could torment them if he wanted to. It's not for lack of power. It's not for lack of authority. But they themselves throw themselves at his feet and they propose an alternative situation, uh, solution. And call me crazy, but I think they, might, they, they gather that he just might do it. And Jesus grants their request. He still punishes them. He still exercises them from the man. He still relieves the man's suffering. But he's even merciful to them. Even though he had the authority and the power to do it. To do anything that he wanted. Now it breaks my categories for God's mercy. To think that Jesus could even be merciful to demons. But think about what they're saying to him. Have you come here to torment us? When? Before the time? Have you come here to torment us before the time? The fact that he's even allowing them to live is mercy to them. He's once again staying his hand of justice. But we know that that will only be for a time. That will only be for a time. Revelation 12, 12 tells us this, Therefore rejoice, o, earth, o heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And then we see that time fulfilled in Revelation 20, verse 10, where he says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Their time is short, and it will come to an end. That's the before the time that I think they reference there in the passage. But now... What does this mean for us? I think there are a couple of things that we should understand from this passage. First, Jesus is more merciful than you or I could ever imagine. He 
He's more merciful than you or I could ever imagine. Do you struggle with sin? I think we all know the answer to that. Do you ever spend time looking at yourself in the mirror and thinking, surely, surely he doesn't want to hear from me this time. Surely it's too much this time to bring my sin before him. Surely it's at this point where he runs out of patience with me. Where he says to me, look, I've had it. You keep telling me the same thing over and over again. Do you feel as though your sin is unforgivable? Surely he's he's not going to want to hear from me this time. That's a lie from Satan. The very same devil who knows that's not true. Notice he doesn't really remind you of how forgivable you are. He never reminds us, go confess your sins to the Lord. He'll forgive you. That's never the encouragement. It's always reminding you how worthless you are. But when we buy into it, it's another kind of pride. See, it's pride that masquerades itself as self-deprecation. It's thinking, at this point, I have actually found a way to out His grace. Nobody else in the world could do it, but I could. I found a way. That's how professional of a sinner I am. Imagine how we could be prideful over such a silly thing. At the moment we begin to think that His mercy has run out, let's also begin to think that His mercy is equal to His strength. We would never think his strength has run out. His authority has run out. His power has run out. Oh, Jesus is powerless here. We would never think that. Why do we think his mercy runs out? The second thing that I think we should take away from this is equally as important, but on the opposite side. Don't mistake his mercy over your sin for apathy. Don't mistake his mercy over your sin for apathy. If you are in here and right now, perhaps you don't believe in Jesus. Or perhaps you're not following him as his disciple. Perhaps you're not bringing your sin to him. Perhaps you think that all of this is just fun and games. I will tell you, I will warn you that one day we will face a judge. who, though he is merciful, is also righteous and just and holy. And it's on that day when all works will be disclosed in front of him. And you will face your sin. See, that verse that I read about Satan being thrown into the lake of fire, that's Revelation 20, verse 10. But now let's read 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. 
Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. My encouragement to you is to not play games with that day. None of us knows when that day will come for us. No one knows. If they walk outside these doors, they die of a heart attack immediately. They stand before the throne of God. No one knows when that day will be. So my encouragement to you is to not play games. Instead, own your sin to Him. Confess it. Trust Him as Lord and Savior who has died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin so that on that day you stand there with Christ, your attorney. Instead of standing that, on that day under self-representation. How dreadful that would be. Now if you are in Him, if you are a follower of Christ, if you are his disciple, then yes, he takes you as you are. But he loves you too much to leave you that way. He takes you as you are and makes you what he wants you to be. So the suffering that we go through, the times where we have those, those bouts in the mirror is him whittling away at the sin. Yes, that is sin. Yes, it grieves the heart of God. But yes, he is merciful. And he hears your repentance. He hears your confession. And the Bible says if we, are, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because he has the power, he has the authority, and he has the mercy to do so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our sin is ever before us. Every one of us in this room knows the sins that you have laid on our heart, that you have poked us with, that you have convicted us with. They're ever in front of our eyes. Our flesh won't let us forget it. Our spirit won't let us forget it. Satan himself won't let us forget it. But Lord, you have the power and the authority and the mercy to forgive it. I pray for every single person in this room within earshot of my voice, that you would even right now bring us to our knees, confessing our sin to you now.
without fear. And not behaving like the townspeople and asking you to leave. But welcoming you into our lives that we may continue to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.